Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Kurt, it's great to see you. I'm Rich Verma. I'm glad we can continue the Tea Leaves Podcast again in our virtual format over Zoom, and we're delighted to have a really special guest with us today. You look good too, Rich, and it's great to see you. So today we're thrilled to be joined by a very experienced business and government leader and a great friend, Fred Hochberg. Fred served for eight years as chairman and president of the U.S. Export-Import Bank, known as Exim in Washington, and has served in a number of important capacities in both the public and private sector. He's also the author of a recently published book, which is terrific, Trade is Not a Four-Letter Word. Rich? Fred, I'm delighted you could be with us. We worked together a lot in government where you were chairman of XM. You came out to India several times to support the civil nuclear project and the financing of U.S. reactors to be built in India, which is still an ongoing project. But I really want to talk to you about your new book, which is terrific. Tell us when you wrote it and tell us how you're promoting it during these lockdown times. Just for a quick case, anybody would like to know what the cover is. The thing is, one thing about this book I have discovered when I talk to people on Zoom, I can tell clearly if it's in their bookcase or not because the yellow does pop out from Very the yellow. other books like in the background. It really pops. So, I like it. You know, as you mentioned, I chaired the Export Input Bank for eight years for President Obama. And partly, I just kept noticing how the tide about trade became more and more sour. And I, I did not fully understand that because I, of course, dealt with on the export side, which is driving jobs and driving employment and building businesses in America. But frankly, we can't only export. People want us to would, buy our goods, but they wanted us to buy their goods as well, hence the idea of trade. So it's very hard to say, I'm all for exports, but no imports. But that doesn't, that just doesn't work. So uh, I had the idea for this, but frankly, I got invited to become a fellow at the Institute of Politics at both the Kennedy School at Harvard and University of Chicago with David Axelrod. And in devising how I would run a seminar for college students and how to get them engaged, I came up with this title because I thought if I wrote, if I ran a course called Resetting America's Trade Agenda in the 21st Century, nobody would show up. Right. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but trade as a four-letter word would certainly be a little more entertaining and say that we've we got to look at something that's going on here. So I started thinking about, I didn't even think about a book, but so many guest speakers and students said, why aren't you writing a book? So hence, the book came out and it was published in January, January 14th, actually the day before the impeachment trial. So we've gotten a good good traction out there, and, and but it's a little bit a little harder between the COVID crisis and impeachment to sort of break through a little bit. Tea Leaves is going to give you a a big breakthrough here. These these are your people. (laughs) My peeps. You have gotten incredible reaction. I I saw, I think you were a recommended book by Fareed Zakaria. George Will had a column about your book. I mean, it's it's really, you've tapped into something. There, There are two elements of the book I want to ask you about. One is that you do this really great history of trade. And I know our listeners are not going to say, oh, I really want to go read the history of U.S. trade. But it's important because what you document is that the battles we're having in 2020 on trade are battles that started in our founding, essentially, this battle between rural and urban and north and south. I mean, these are playing out. I want you to say a little bit about that 
And then I also want to ask you about these six case studies that you use as well. Sure. First, tell us about the history. As you mentioned, we're having these battles in 2020. We had them in 1920. We had them in 1820. We had them in 1780. And in fact, the very first bill passed by the Continental Congress was a tariff because we had to pay for the war and we had to actually raise revenue. So, and fights over tariffs, who pays the tariffs, what parts of the country, uh, there was always a tension between the North and the South. The North wanted more protectionism from goods coming in from Britain. The South wanted more free trade at the time so they could export their cotton to the rest of the world. And partly in understanding that the issues around trade have a geographic element to them and are separate by industry to industry helped me understand this issue. And it doesn't look like, why are we all of a sudden talking about tariffs? In fact, the unusual thing is we were always talking about tariffs until about the 1920s and 30s when some people feel that the imposition of tariffs with Smoot-Hawley was what actually helped sort of, if it didn't usher in the depression, it certainly was one of the building blocks towards that. So I have found that an interesting aspect of it because it helped me understand trade in our history. Right. And do you think those dividing lines, and there's so much we can talk about here as we move from trade policy to trade politics, but it's interesting, you you mentioned that the Republican Party in your book started out as the party of protectionism and high tariffs. And now we're in this kind of back to this inverted situation where, I don't know, is the Republican Party back to the, being the party of high tariffs and now Democrats are the party of trade? I'm a little confused about where we are today. Just to add to that, you know, in fact, the platforms of both parties are somewhat skeptical about trade. Do you think there will be a party that is basically representing sort of an internationalist perspective and the, you know, kind of the values that you espouse in your book? Well, I think, first of all, just as both of you said, at one point, the Republican Party was the internationalist party, the free trade party. And I think what happened with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the challenge of getting that through Congress was it turns out Republican members may have been very international. Republican constituents were increasingly anti-trade and more protectionist. And although labor, for example, tends to be supportive of Democratic candidates, it's not clear that rank-and-file labor members are actually voting the same way that labor leadership is voting. And we've seen this in many areas. We've seen this in the Congressional Black Caucus has often been far more progressive on a number of issues beyond civil rights, LGBT rights being one just one example, than perhaps many members of the African-American community who may be more church-going and more traditional. So I think right now, and Donald Trump has a lot to do with this, the realignment of political parties, I think we're in a period of that, and I think it's hard to see how that's going to sort itself out. It's hard to imagine a number of people in labor going to the Republican Party, yet in some ways I think that the USMCA, the United States-Mexican-Canadian Agreement, Donald Trump is such a protectionist, he was able to bring along a lot of Democrats who might not normally have voted for him, who voted with him on something. So I think we're in a period where this is really shifting rather wildly, and we don't know where it's going to come out yet. yet. Also, Democratic Party tends to be more coastal, more younger, more college-educated, and they tend to be more about free trade, more about embracing the world 
as it's developing versus trying to retreat from it. But Fred, the basic premise about trade, and you go through some great definitions about comparative advantage and how we need to be connected in the world and we're going to have certain advantages and we should trade with other countries where we can get you know, the comparative advantage. But the narrative that I guess I would call this maybe a 40-year narrative now, and Ross Perot raised it with his giant sucking sound of jobs going to Mexico, and then you had Pat Buchanan, you've had others you know, crop up, and, and Donald Trump is the latest, but the theory of their case is something like globalization has been bad, alliances have been bad, Americans have gotten the raw end of the deal, and you've got $2 an hour labor across the world that doesn't pay for health care or labor rights or environmental rights, and you want us to trade with those countries? No, that's a bad deal for American workers, and that's not in anyone's interest. So how do you argue against some of those points? Well, I mean, because partly I think we we can tr- also trade with countries without having a trade agreement. You know, we, we trade with Vietnam. We don't have a real agreement with Vietnam. So one, we can do trading without having trade agreements. I think that we have those who have been for trade, for globalism, have done a lousy job, a terrible job of two things. One, making the case, and two, supporting people who've been hurt. Many people in Midwestern states, and they happen to be coincidentally battleground states, which makes this a much sharper issue, whether it's Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and so forth, were really badly hurt by trade. Their lives were upended, communities were upended, lifelong relationships with companies were upended, and we did give it sufficient attention to address that. And partly, I think, economists say, hey, we're generating one and a half million jobs every year, and if trade, we lose 25 or 50,000, that's not a lot considering it's one and a half million. It is a lot if it's your life, your job, your community that got hollowed out. And many of them did get hollowed out, and we didn't do a very good job about how we address that. Secondly, I don't think we've done a, we have not done a good job of, this goes broader, Rich, you know, whether it's teaching civics, whether it's teaching where we are in the world. You know, the United States has benefited mightily since World War II. And whether it's a number of the structures since World War II, whether it be the UN, whether it's about trade, later on things like NATO, but we have benefited what's now the WTO, uh, which is also under great scrutiny right now. We have benefited enormously. The largest economy in the world, in many ways, one could argue the only superpower, the largest exporter of goods until the beginning of this century. We never, that didn't just happen. That's not just because, oh, we're so smart. We, no, we actually put structures in place that ensured fair trade, that ensured a level playing field, and we benefited from that. But we've never told people that. So they just think, oh, it's because we're smart. We're not smart necessarily, smarter than everyone else. We've also created a system where there's a little more checks and balance. Yeah. I want to turn to Kurt and I want to turn to China because it's the topic everyone's talking about. And and you have this incredible chart or graph in your book that shows Chinese GDP growth from, I think, 19, 
60 to 2015, and you call it the uh-oh chart because it's <laughs> dramatically sharp and, and increasing. And here we are today. And I know Kurt spends a lot of time thinking and writing, yes. talking about this. I know this is the subject du jour of the campaign and the dividing lines, but I don't know if you have an opinion on the trade skirmish that we got ourselves into with China and whether we came out ahead or, or behind. Well, China's here to stay. They've been here for a lot longer than before we, we became a country. They're going to be, they're not disappearing. It's, you know, and the issues with China, as all of us know, are go far deeper than trade. And if anything, this COVID pandemic has taught us is that issues around health, issues, frankly, around the environment, and yes, issues around trade are all interrelated. So to think that we can just separate one and deal with one solely to the exclusion of others just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that, frankly, President Obama, who we worked for, understood that we have a lot of issues with China. We have issues around human rights. We have issues around the environment. We have South China Sea, North Korea, terrorism, natural resources, all of those things, intellectual property. And they're there for some time in conflict. President Trump has taken the view that the only thing that matters with China is our bilateral trade deficit. And that when you put everything into that prism, it, it distorts every other discussion you're going to have. So I think that is a problem I see in how we're looking at it today. By the way, speaking of bilateral, I running right now I'm running a bilateral surplus with my barber. I have not seen him in three to four months. And I don't think that's good for either of us, frankly, even though I'm running a surplus at the moment with my barber in Washington. Yeah, I, my daughter's cutting my hair, which is <laughs> an adventure. But so Are Frank, you paying her? Yeah, do, you think we, do you think we've crossed the Rubicon in our relationship with China? I mean, it, almost every day with Hong Kong and you've seen Chinese you know, engagements with the Indian military and over the territorial lines and disputed territory in South China Sea. I mean, it, it appears at least that President Xi is quite ambitious and prepared to take risks, very assertive, and, you know, culminating in what took place last couple of days with respect to Hong Kong. Can we reestablish a more workable bilateral relationship, or is the distrust just too great to be overcome? Well, I think part of that does rest in what happens in November, to be perfectly honest. You know, we all know Rahm Emanuel, who used that line, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. President Trump is not wasting this crisis. President Xi is not wasting this crisis. They are both using the crisis to further their agenda. There could be a disruption of that agenda, depending on the outcome in November, but that isn't assured. And I think the fact that we pulled out of Iran, we pulled out of the climate accord in Paris, what's going on with China now, it will take some time for the world to trust, even if President, even if Vice President Biden is, in, is elected, that we're reliable. I think that the, the fact that the fits and starts of our policy, and Kurt, you know this from your time at the State Department, it's going to, it makes people a little more skeptical about how reliable a partner we are, how reliable an entity we are in terms of backing of what we say. So I think that I'm always an optimist. I can't believe things cannot be reversed, but we're driving 50 miles an hour in the wrong direction. Maybe it's 75 miles an hour in the wrong direction. 
Fred, I wonder if you could, Rich and I have both, you know, benefited enormously working with you. You, you had a visionary approach to the XM Bank, but for our listeners and watchers, viewers who understand maybe a little bit about the XM Bank, but, you know, you were there f- through a dramatic period where you had to, you know, go up and appeal to funding. You played a huge role in supporting many of our big business deals with with Boeing, with GE, with others across the region. How do you explain the mission? Do you think the institution is more stable now? And what do you see of it in the future? Well, you know, Exim Bank, the Export Input Bank was actually started by FDR. Uh, I've been cleaning out my garage, as many of us do, and I found a copy of the executive order he issued on February 2nd, 1934, establishing the Export Input Bank. And it was established because there was a need for more jobs. And FDR... Fred, can I just say, you got different stuff in your garage than I've got. <laughs> that, that sounds like some, some document that you could take and put it in a museum. I've just got a bunch of crap, and you're welcome to come over and start working here if you'd like. So. Right now, I have 18 bags, probably a thousand pounds of work to be shredded. So I, I'm, I, a lot of it's going out in the dustbin. Okay. So the whole export input bank, it was started by FDR because he said, we need more jobs in America. What exports a way to drive jobs? What stops exports? It's partly financing. It's partly both. Sometimes it's perceived risk of selling overseas and how you get paid and how you finance that. And sometimes it's real risk. So that's why it was started in 1934. I was fortunate to be named by President Obama to be the chairman for two terms. I served for eight years. We supported, as you mentioned, Kurt, many large companies. And Rich and I worked together on trying to finance a, um, a nuclear power plant for India, which has not gone forward. I should add, about 90% of the companies we worked with, not 90% of the dollars, but 90% of the companies were small businesses. And they are a lot of what we do in terms of supporting them because they often have even fewer options of where to go when they're trying to support their business overseas. So what the Export Info Bank does, basically it provides financing. Sometimes it helps a buyer. Using Rich's example, we were helping the government of India find the financing so they could finance a nuclear power plant to provide carbonless power in the south of India. So we were going to provide buyer financing for them. Sometimes for small businesses, it's providing them with working capital or credit insurance so that they could sell overseas and reduce the risk of not getting paid. So those are the two main areas that we did. You ask if it's more stable. The good news is that uh, most recently, the Export Input Bank makes a profit. We made just under $4 billion worth of profit. And, and, and I always add to people, even the Wall Street Journal calls it a profit. It's not like a bookkeeping entity. We actually sent money to the taxpayers, to the treasury. It now has what's called a seven-year authorization. So it is not going to have a start and stop that I had to experience when I chaired it. It has a seven-year life, taking it to 2026, 2027, which will be a giant help in terms of providing reliable support for companies who want to export. And frankly, coming out of this COVID crisis, we're going to have a huge employment issue. Exports are a way of driving employment. And countries that will need U.S. goods are going to need the financing because everybody's uh, treasury is going to be depleted. So I would say that in the next four years, the Export Input Bank will need to play even a more significant role than it has in the past. 
I'm really glad to hear about that seven-year reauthorization because I know, especially on Capitol Hill, you had critics who kept calling the Export-Import Bank corporate welfare and you're subsidizing big corporations. Why are you doing that? And you, you hung in there and I, I really appreciate that. I mean, those were, those were tough battles. That they, you were, they were very tough. And, you know, they were very focused on calling it corporate welfare. Right. And they said in open hearings, how can we cut social and human welfare if we haven't cut corporate welfare? So they were really keyed in on calling it corporate welfare. I will tell you, the businesses that paid for our services and paid handily and helped generate $4 billion worth of profits, they were quite dumbfounded by, why is this called welfare? I'm paying through the nose. <laughs> to get the help and support of the U.S. government to make right. these sales overseas. Right. Can I ask just on, on that question, I was struck. Sometimes, you know, the certainly the American business community gains so much from years-long negotiation that went into TPP, the work that you did in the Axiom Bank. I find that on some occasions, particularly, you know, the reauthorization and also some, some of the efforts around TPP, Frankly, I think they could have pulled a little harder on the oars. Totally, totally. I mean, I want to be polite here, but I... What Let's is not be that... If we're too polite, no one will listen. Yeah, Let no, me they, be, they like our soft touch. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you... Why is here's that? My, is it, is it because we're view. Democrats? Is it no, because... It, it, what was it? I think that many of the business people and I talk to, they care about tax relief and regulatory reform relief. And I, I felt like it's the equivalent of let's talk about taxes and regulatory reform. Let's go over those, that tax issue one more time. And they go, oh, you know, our time is up. I don't think we have time to deal with it. <laughs> and whether it has to do with STEM education, infrastructure, the Export Input Bank, funding of the State Department, TPP, all those things get relegated to a side issue versus taxes and regulatory reform. And I think that that just so overwhelms it. And uh, you talk to people at the chamber because the chamber says, that's what our members hire us for. So uh, I think, you know, frankly, you mentioned GE and Boeing were two companies, I would say in the forefront who took a broader view, a longer term view than yeah. what are our tax rates. But we need a strong America that has a good footprint around the world for Trans-Pacific Partnership, the Export Input Bank, and other things. Yeah, well, Fred, we, we started out talking about trade and, and the difficult environment we're in on trade, and, and you made the case. You put the kind of pandemic on top of those attitudes already, right? And you have now even greater forces arguing against globalization. You have increased calls for nationalism, protectionism, increasing tariff rates. And I just, you know, coming out of this kind of post-COVID world that was already skeptical about trade, how do we get this back on track? And then maybe just take on some of the arguments that the president has been making about tariffs, that tariffs are there to protect Americans. And I think you, you probably have high tariffs, that is. And, and I think you, you have a different view of what happens with right. high tariffs. Well, one of the issues we're dealing with right now is a reduction in, our, in the food supply, particularly in meat. And the fact is, and I talk about the, one of the examples I use in the book is the taco bowl. 
And the fact is that we import a lot of meat from New Zealand, from Australia, and other places around the world. And the fact that we're able to import fruits, vegetables, meat products, seafood, ensures that when there is a hiccup in the supply chain, that there are other places to go to so that we, the consumer doesn't feel it. The analogy I use, Rich, is, you know, if you know, if let's in a normal world, you drive to work and your car is at a commission, you don't stay home. You say, well, I could take the metro, I could use a ride service, I could use Lyft, I could use Uber, I could carpool, I, you know, same with supply chains. We need to make them more resilient that we're not beholden to one country or one company. And I think that manufacturers around the in the United States and the world are going to be re-looking at that. The idea of the quote-unquote just-in-time inventory where you got it in one day and within a week it was shipped out the other end. I think people realizing, wait, you know, with natural disasters, let alone this terrible COVID pandemic, we're going to have to have a, a more resilient, a stronger supply chain that we aren't that subject to that kind of disruption. Right. So that's number one. On tariffs, you know, tariffs were a, a, a 20th century, I thought discarded largely in the 20th century. They have now reared their head. They, they were tools to fund our government, right? You wrote yes. about it. Like, this they is were tools. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we used tariffs until we imposed the, the income tax in 1913. Tariffs were how we paid for our government. And we have used it sometimes to protect industries. But largely, we've, the view has been led by the United States that for consumers and businesses, lower or no tariffs are far preferable. Now, they're not, they're not at zero, but they've been close to zero in many areas. And I think that what President Trump does not make clear is we pay for the tariffs. You know, tariffs are essentially a sales tax on goods that we import from the rest of the world. And so they may make imported goods more expensive, so frankly, they serve as a protection for domestic industries. They let protect domestic industries actually perhaps not get as efficient or not be as innovative. That isn't a good thing. And we pay for it. So just on that though, Fred, because you the, the other theme in your book is that trade creates winners and losers, as you, you already talked about. Uh, and, and you said we, we've done a bad job helping people who have lost out in this competition. But so your solution set, though, is not higher tariffs. Your solution set is innovation, it's social safety net, it's education, it's infrastructure, it's a whole, it's a whole range of things. Do I, is that the argument? Yes. And, and first of all, 70 to 80% of our economy is a service economy. It's one reason, in part, why this COVID crisis has been so difficult for our country. We are a lot of what we are selling and doing is entertainment, travel, tourism, accounting services, consulting, legal. So a lot of our economy is the service economy. So we should be, if we're worrying about our economy as a whole, we should want as much open trade, as much reduction in friction over borders so that we can get our bankers, our entertainment, you know, our television shows, I feature Game of Thrones in here because it's an example of how much entertainment we export to the rest of the world, which exports not just creates a lot of jobs in the United States, but also exports our way of life. Higher education is a huge export of ours. 
over $40 billion in, in foreign students studying here. And by the way, that's going to be under severe pressure and crisis because how many parents are going to be sending their children to the United States right now? First of all, I don't know if they'll be able to get in. Right. And if they are here, will they be able to get home? So I think that we, are, we, we sometimes keep looking at trade as though it's about goods, you know, automobiles, trucks, power plants, and not thinking about the entire range of what we uh, produce and export. Fred, let me, first of all, I, I want to give you another opportunity to hold up the book. We've got a couple of minutes left. And I want to- <laughs> so, so- oh, only if you insist, Kurt. Okay, that's great. And, and we've, got people, we've got people listening as well. So trade is not a four-letter <laughs> word by Fred Hochberg. And where, where do they get it if they can't go out to You can get it, uh, obviously, in a bookstore. You can get it online from Barnes & Noble, Google Books, Amazon. All of them sell it online. You can get the audio book. If you like my voice, you'll hear it. You can hear me read. You can hear me read the book to you, <laughs> and it's also obviously on, on Kindle, another online portal. So trade is not a four-letter word. Fred, as uh, a parting shot, so one of the great things uh, all of us have written things before. When you write a book, you often learn something that surprises you. There's some usually some element. You start up with a thesis, but sometimes you you run across research that is unexpected. For you, if you're going to help us understand something about trade that for you found unexpected, even after your years of service at XM, what would it be for our listeners? Well, I think one thing we did, one, we have been wrestling the issues around trade for over 250 years. This is not something that has just come about now. That's and, a great you know, point. When we see the issues around the NAFTA, which is now renamed, or what's going on with Europe, or going with China. We've been having these trade issues for hundreds and hundreds of years. The last time we faced an adversary, or at least a competitor, the likes of China, in my opinion, was Great Britain in 1812 when we went to war with them, where they were both our largest trading partner and a, and a military power. So we haven't really had that and that is something, you know, we had our skirmishes with Japan, but they were an ally. We had our skirmishes with the Soviet Union, but we really were not connected economically. They were a military. So in China, we have both a military power and an economic power, and we haven't really dealt with that for a long time. So that was one thing I come away from this book as in terms of trying to understand the world we're in right now. Secondly, and I think this crisis shows us, Kurt, is that is, the COVID-19 shows just how connected this world is. Yeah. And the idea that we can separate, we can sort of decouple. We can't decouple on health. We can't decouple on the environment. And frankly, I see trade as a way that countries can work together, get practice doing work together. So when we have a crisis like climate or a crisis such as health, we've actually built some goodwill. We've actually learned from each other. We've worked with each other. And it provides a way for us to make that better. That's why higher education is so important. Having students study in America, having American students study abroad, um, you are at the State Department. The Fulbright is another example of that. How we get better understanding so that we don't get into these sort of cartoon versions of what the Chinese are and what we are. And I would say the other thing is how much of our products, and I, I feature the Honda Odyssey in here, it's the most American car on the road. It's not a Chevy. It's not a Ford, not a Chrysler. And so understanding where our things come from and why trade has made our life better is something that 
I came away from this book a bigger believer of, understanding its shortfalls, but also a bigger believer of. Fred, that's terrific and a great primer for what will be a wonderful book during the long hours that we're huddled, when we're not on the, you know, the lake of the Ozark uh, sunning. Fred, thank you so much for joining us on Tea Leaves Day. We really appreciate it, and we wish you the best in your future endeavors and with the sale. I'll hold, I'll, hold it up. I'll hold it up one last time. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, Fred, you, so much. You, you did a great job in government, amazing uh, career in private sector, public sector, and this is yet another important chapter. So thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can obviously access the full video of this recorded conversation with Fred online on our website at theasiagroup.com. Everyone stay safe and healthy, and we will see you next time. Kurt and Fred. Thanks, Rich. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. Thank you. Thanks so much.